morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Michael Flake. I'm one of the pastors here. Always good to be together as a church family, both online and at the Lake Norman YMCA. Always good to worship together. Whether you are cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. We sent an email about this at the very end of the week. I did want to say something about it this morning, though. Uh, we, as you know, are a couple months into our Established in Love campaign, raising money to build a church building on South Main Street in Davidson. I'd given you kind of a preliminary total at the end of September. I wanted to <clears throat> circle back with you and let you know kind of our official, official amount, although two people have told me they still haven't turned their cards in and are going to, but this is the official, official amount, and if we have to come up with an official, official, official amount, uh, we'll do that later. At this point, we had a goal of $4.8 million. Um, thus far, we have pledges of $5,575,661.32. Matt, thank you for those 32 cents. So, uh, and of that pledge total, 25% has come in in the first two months. So we are going strong out of the gates. We praise God for His generosity. We praise God for the generosity He's working in so many of our lives. And let's continue to pray for the smooth and timely sale of the commercial parcels so that we can continue to move forward judiciously. I would also just take the moment to say thank you to all of you in advance for your strong year-end giving. We see a quarter to a third of our giving to the general fund to come in in the last two months of the year. That's enough to make a pastor nervous, but it works out every year. So thank you in advance uh, for that. Your giving powers the ministry of our church forward. But it also, as you see through, through the video, it, it tries to, we try to bless God's larger kingdom and be part of God's larger kingdom. So we, we give away at least 10% of our budget to mission work and about another 10% to starting and strengthening other churches. So thank you in advance for that strong uh, year in general giving. I was not here last week. I was actually at the church plant that we're supporting in U-City. They are launching in January, but they're doing like their soft launch services right now. So last Sunday was their first soft launch service. I wanted to be there to encourage them, to send our love, to tell them we think they're doing a great job, because in the early days, you just need somebody to tell you you're doing a great job, and they're doing a great job. So it, it is wonderful to get to support them with money, with prayers, with encouragement, and we will continue to do that. We're also thrilled that this week we sent out our first mission trip in two years to Bolivia, to the Children's Impact Network, the Bolivia Life Center. Uh, the, the boys in the Bolivia Life Center are all orphans from the street of Cochabamba, Bolivia, who now have a home and a family. You saw Lindsay, who grew up at this church, actually went on one of these Bolivia trips and now lives her life there at the Bolivia Life Center, uh, helping serve those boys. So. We are thrilled that team is going out. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to pray for the folks we're sending to Bolivia and the folks we're sending uh, to you city and ask you that you'll continue to pray for them even as we go from this place. If you give money to Lake Forest Davidson, you should know you are buying the boys in Bolivia a Christmas present. We're buying them new mattresses. Uh, they haven't had those for a little while. So uh, thank you for helping us 
buy them some new mattresses. The team will get to hand them over, but uh, we'll let them take all the credit. But I know you helped too. All right. Well, today the sermon is sort of about, well, it's not sort of about, it's about wise counsel. That there are things in our lives, decisions in our lives, situations in our lives that are beyond our ability to solve on our own. And when we hit those instances, we need wise counsel. Certainly we need the scripture, the grace and truth of God, but we also often need wise counsel, people who can help us apply God's grace and truth to the situation that we face. How beautiful then that we don't walk alone, that we don't have to figure everything out on our own that God has given us other people to walk alongside. So we want to look today at the nature of wise counsel. So I want to walk through the passage that Amy read for us earlier, and if I have any time left, try to point out a few uh, dimensions of wise counsel, whether we give it or receive it. What is the nature of wise counsel? We continue our year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. For all of 2021, we're going through the big picture of the Bible, that you and I will find our place in what God is doing in the world. So throughout the first half of the Bible, that took us to about July, through the first half of the Bible, we kept hearing about a coming hero, a wounded champion called the Messiah, called the Christ, who would lead God's eternal kingdom. Now in the second half of the Bible, we've been introduced to Jesus, that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He's fully God. He's fully human. God wrapped himself in humanity and moved into the neighborhood. He came to earth on a rescue mission for you and for me to reconcile us to God. That's what his life was about. That's what his death was about. And then on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. He is the conqueror of death. He is the perfect sacrifice vindicated by God in his resurrection. And his invitation remains the same. Come follow me and I will repurpose your life. Come follow me and I will repurpose your life. So now we're in the later books of the Bible, but this is true even in our world today. What we see is that God, the Holy Spirit, fills up followers of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you ever become a follower of Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, fills up followers of Jesus and empowers us to push the mercy and the hope of Jesus further out and further in. When you think about what we're doing in New City, what we're doing in Bolivia, we are trying to push the hope and mercy of Jesus further out. But as we do that, it goes further in. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about that there was a great persecution among the early Christians. It caused the earliest Christians to be pushed out of Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was crucified. That's where the church started, Jerusalem, and where Jesus was resurrected. It started in Jerusalem. And the persecution pushed them to Judea and then to Samaria. Ultimately, it pushed them out to the very ends of the earth. One of their chief persecutors was named Saul, and then Saul encountered the resurrected Jesus and was changed forever. He started to go by his Greek name, Paul, and he devoted the rest of his life to starting new churches throughout the known world. He devoted the rest of his life to pushing the boundaries of God's kingdom as far as he could, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 9 verse 26 says that when he, Paul, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. 
So Paul is this once great persecutor of the church. He's now a Christian. He goes on to write a lot of the books of the New Testament. He shows up in Jerusalem and wants to go to church. He wants to join a community group. He wants to get there early to set out the chairs. And the early Christians say, nope, we're not falling for that one. They think it's some kind of a sting operation. And so there's a man named Barnabas. He's a Christian known for his wisdom, known as a great encourager, a a great coach of other leaders. And he goes out to meet with Paul. And he sees the genuineness of Paul's conversion. And once Barnabas is cool with Paul, everybody's cool with Paul. Barnabas and Paul actually became very good friends. They traveled together. They wanted to go and encourage new Christians throughout the Middle East up into Turkey. And as they were doing this, they noticed the strangest thing. They noticed Jesus was Jewish. Almost all his first disciples, well, all of his first disciples were Jewish. Almost all the first Christians were Jewish. But then somewhere around Three to 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Acts chapter 10 just about, a lot of the people who were becoming Christians were not Jewish. They were Gentiles, which simply means not Jewish. And the earliest Christians were so excited to see the grace, the truth of Jesus was taking root in people's lives, but they had questions about this. Because they knew what it meant for Jewish people to become Christians. But what about Gentiles? Could Gentiles become Christians? Or did Gentiles first need to become Jews to become Christians? It's actually a pretty intriguing question. And Barnabas and Paul found that a lot of the new Gentile Christians were getting mixed messages on this. Could they be Christians or did they need to become Jews to become Christians? So Barnabas and Paul decided to seek counsel. They went back to Jerusalem. They went back to the elders of the church, the founding disciples of the church, and they asked them for clarity on this question. And they, they sought counsel, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, but in fact what the earliest uh, Christian leaders decided to do was to hold a council, capital C-O-U-N-C-I-L, council. They gathered the leaders of the church together to discuss the most pressing issue of the day. It's called the Jerusalem Council. It's in Acts chapter 15. This is, Amy read part of it for us earlier. It's actually a really important passage for us as a congregation because uh, the leadership of our congregation is Presbyterian. That's from the Greek word presbyteroi, which means elders. So led by elders. In our church, the majority of major decisions are made by the group of elders, not by the whole church, not by one person. No one is a law unto themselves here. The majority of major decisions are made in a group, the group of the elders. Elders are mature Christians who are gifted in leadership, gifted in discerning wisdom. In our church family, at least, our elders meet two to three times a month. Those are some of my favorite things that I get to do. Y'all pay me to do part of my job. You don't pay me to go to those meetings. I would do it for free. I love it. Elder meetings and my random sermon references to the Taco Bell. Those are my two favorite things I get to do. Even when we disagree in those meetings, I leave with the confidence that we are in good hands. And we see something similar here in Acts chapter 15. 
Acts chapter 15 verse 5 says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So the council begins. And thank goodness it's not about what kind of tires should be on the chariot Barnabas and Paul use. It's about how to lovingly and faithfully navigate at the cutting edge of the expansion of God's kingdom. Jesus told them that when the Holy Spirit empowered his followers, they would spread his hope and mercy into every nook and cranny of creation, and that's starting to happen, and the mission is driving the leaders of the church to be more precise in their theology and more open-handed in their structure. Barnabas and Paul are trying to faithfully navigate a frontline question of Jesus' mission, and they seek wise counsel. And there's a group of Christians who had been Pharisees, meaning they had been very legalistic Jews, and they want to see the Christian movement have these same very high standards for these new Christians. As Pharisees, they had high standards for themselves. They had high standards for other people. They may have been eager to point out when you weren't quite living up to those standards. And they're trying to import some of this into Christianity. Verse 6 says that the apostles and the elders met to consider this question, the question of the mixed messages that the Gentile Christians were getting. Because some Christians, like Barnabas and like Paul, were saying, it's, it's great. You trust Jesus like I trust Jesus, so you're a Christian. And then another group of Christians, like the ones in the previous verse, another group of Christians was saying, you trust Jesus, which is great, but you're not quite a Christian. There is one more thing. And this is where the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road. The second group wanted, believed that Gentile men needed to be circumcised in order to become Christians, where the rubber meets the road. The very sharp rubber meets the very sensitive road. But their logic was this, and it's not totally crazy. Their logic was, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, so how can he be your Messiah if you're not Jewish? So if you're a man, you need to be circumcised and follow the Old Testament food laws, even though Jesus told us we didn't have to. Then you can follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. This was a complicated question. It was a very contentious question. It threatened to rip the early church apart multiple times. Even mature Christians had different views of, of what to do here. They had different opinions on the matter of circumcision. They had different opinions on the role of the Old Testament in the lives of Gentile Christians. So after a lot of listening and a lot of thinking, two very influential people stood up to speak. And they spoke in favor of Barnabas and Paul's position. The first was Peter, like one of the first two original disciples, Peter. He said, verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. 
So Paul and Peter, Peter is referencing something that happened earlier in the book of Acts. He was invited to go speak to the family of Cornelius. He was actually named after the, the town, so I'm told. Cornelius had a vision in which he was told that there was a man named Peter who had a message for him. And Cornelius was a Roman military leader, so he had people, and he sent his people to go find this Peter. And Peter comes and shares with Cornelius and his whole family. Cornelius gathered his whole family to hear this message. Peter shared with them the invitation, come follow Jesus, and he will repurpose your life. Cornelius and his family said yes to this invitation. So, so before Peter had even finished sharing what he wanted to share, what happened was that the Gentiles in Peter's house, and in Cornelius' house, were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In the same way the Holy Spirit had filled Peter and his Jewish friends back in Acts chapter 2. Peter baptized all of Cornelius' family, and Peter was amazed by all this. He could not shake this. God clearly received the faith of these Gentile people as genuine. They had come to follow Jesus without being circumcised because they were filled with the same Holy Spirit that Peter had been filled with. So Peter gets to this conclusion. He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter is not saying the Old Testament has no value. It has immense value. But the question at hand is, how can a person be made right with God? How can a person be reconciled to God? And the answer for all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, is that Jesus' extravagant grace intersects with our struggling faith. We come to trust Jesus. And that doesn't mean truckloads of trust. That means just a little bit more than no trust. We trust Him to lead us. We trust Him to change us. We trust Him to reconcile us to God. We trust that we will give up trying to earn God's love, and instead we will join in God's victory, the victory that Jesus has already won on our behalf. That's the first person who stands up. The second person who stands up is James the Just. James is the younger brother of Jesus. Talk about a tough gig. James, why can't you be more like your older brother? James is a significant leader of the early Christians. He actually wrote a book of the Bible called James. Very good. Here's what James said. It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James gets a reputation for being a little prickly, but I'm not sure about that. I mean, do you hear what the Spirit has done in his heart? He says, we should not make it difficult for these Gentiles who are turning to God. 
we should not make it difficult for the blank who are turning to God. Instead, we should ask them to constrain their behavior in four matters and trust that over time they will learn the Bible, especially the law of Moses, and they will be changed by the God it reveals. Now, the four matters, I don't have time to go into them right now, but the four matters he names are really interesting, and they're all four topics on which Jewish culture and Gentile culture had radically different viewpoints. And so he said, well, they, so, so they should just constrain their behavior on those things. The outcome of the Jerusalem Council is, Gentiles, you can become Christians simply for, through faith in Jesus. You don't need to be circumcised. You can trust your life into Jesus' hands, receive his invitation to follow him and be reconciled to God. And as you learn the spiritual heritage of the Christian movement, we ask that you do these four things to honor your Christian brothers and sisters who are Jewish by heritage. So he didn't get into an argument about what the right position was. But we're going to make decisions to honor our brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters who have different convictions or heritage on these matters. We've gotten to flex these muscles recently, haven't we? All the way back from Acts 15. As you can imagine, the Gentile Christians were thrilled. Half of them especially thrilled. All because Barnabas and Paul sought wise counsel. They admitted this was a problem, an issue, a situation they could not fix on their own. They needed wise counsel. And the truth is we often do have to seek wise counsel because part of being wise is that you don't always blurt out your opinion. We often have to seek wise counsel, ask for it in the matters we face. Well, I love the Jerusalem Council so much so that I used up most of my time actually just preaching through the text. So I'm going to have to do these fast. Four elements of wise counsel that we see from this text. So that if you in the future are asked for wise counsel or you go to seek wise counsel from someone, here's how you'll kind of know you found it. Four elements of wise counsel from Acts 15, and they are these. Number one, number one, number, 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 number one. The first part of wise counsel is, number one, a willingness to listen. A willingness to listen. Acts 15, 12 says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. A lot of why there's a difference between wise counsel and a know-it-all, and the difference is typically the willingness to listen to listen to you, to understand the true nature of the decision, the true nature of the problem, to ask questions, to understand, to listen. What strikes me about the Jerusalem Council is for all the high-powered players you had in that room, there was a lot of listening. Not a lot of grandstanding, a lot of listening. In fact, the heavy hitters, people like Peter, people like James, they only spoke after they had done a lot of listening. They knew their words were going to carry a lot of weight, and so they started off by listening. 
They waited on sharing their viewpoints until they'd gotten to do a lot of listening. So that's number one, a willingness to listen. Number two, wise counsel is number two, a willingness to listen to other viewpoints. Verse five, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Wise counsel is not simply the regurgitation of talking points. It's not simply a sympathy session that just says what we want to hear. Wise counsel is, is an, a willingness to listen to you, to listen to Barnabas and Paul, but then to listen to other people, other perspectives, other possible explanations, other possible outcomes. Wise counsel listens out of both ears, not just the ear that's closest to you. Wise counsel will listen out of both ears. Number three, wise counsel involves a desire to represent Jesus. A desire to represent Jesus. Verse 11, Peter says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. A desire to represent Jesus. Sometimes we think of church leadership as like representative government. They're like with the elders. I represent the people in the congregation who like the Taco Bell. And Meredith represents the business owners. And Gray represents the young people. And uh, uh, Rusty represents the footloose and fancy free people. And everybody represents somebody. Well, the truth is, the elders of a church are representatives. And we all represent the same guy. We are trying to understand what Jesus would want in the situation. That we might do what pleases Him. And that's the nature of wise counsel. I've listened to you. I've listened to other perspectives. Now, what would God have us do? What would Jesus, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this instance? That's how Peter got to his viewpoint at the council. He recognized what God was doing in Cornelius' family, and that helped him navigate this issue in all of its complexities. Peter did not turn to personal loyalties. He did not turn to personal gain. He found his way forward by reflecting on the character and the work of God. That's why it's marvelous that Jesus has not left us alone to figure out the hardest parts, the hardest personal, the hardest collective decisions we face. He's not left us alone. He's given us the Scripture, which gives us a window into the heart and mind of God. He's also given us wise counsel, leaders, a church family, people who are not totally like us, some people further along in their faith than us, that we could discern together what it means to love God and to love people and to keep Christ in the center of the situations that you and I face. This is the beauty of church family. The beauty of church family is everybody here ain't like you. They're frustrating to you. That's the beauty of the thing. Because I'm going to get in situations, we're going to get in situations, you're going to get in situations that you need someone who doesn't think like you, has different perspective or insight than you do to navigate it correctly, to navigate it well. What a beautiful thing. 
So a willingness to listen out of both ears, a desire to represent Jesus. And then number four, number four, finally, number four, the nature of wise counsel is that you find a heart like James, a heart like James who says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. A heart like James. James had expectations of everybody involved. He said to the Christians who had been Pharisees, y'all need to let go of this circumcision thing. He said to the Gentile Christians, you, you need to constrain your behavior in these four areas. He had expectations. And he had a deep desire that we should not construct obstacles that keep people from being reconciled to God. A sure sign that you found wise counsel is that the person loves you, the person is for you, and the person asks something of you. The person has an expectation of you. They might even be willing to disagree with you. They might even be willing to challenge you. And they might do so in a way that points you back to the invitation of Jesus, who said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke is the thing that connects to uh, like oxen pulling something. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are you worn out? tired of falling short, burned out on trying to measure up, come to Jesus in whose presence you can rest, in whose forgiveness you can heal, in whose purpose you can live. Not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. That you belong to Jesus who has done everything needed to reconcile you and me and everybody back to God. What will you and I do when we are confronted with that sort of love? A love that says, come to me if you're weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So the question I'd like to ask you to reflect on as I sort of wrap up is simply this. How does Acts 15 reframe an important decision or challenge that you face? How does Acts 15 reframe an important decision or challenge that you face? That you don't have to face it alone? That you don't simply have to ask the people who will tell you what you want to hear? That you have people all around you in this church family, in your community group, on your serving team, elders, friends, leaders who would love to help? There is no challenge and there is no decision that puts you out beyond the love of God. Instead, in whatever you're walking through, Jesus invites you to come to Him. Once you realize that you are weary and heavy burdened in a way that you cannot solve. If you are weary and heavy burdened in a way that you cannot solve, Jesus says, come to me because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul.
Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring in your heart or your mind. Lord, we thank you for those who are going to serve your mission in, in the U-City New Church, going to serve the orphans who have found a family in Bolivia. Lord, empower them to be people of hope and mercy. Protect them. Push your mission forward through them. We send them with joy because there is no scarcity in your kingdom. Lord, I pray for all of us in this church family that as we go about our days, we would be people of hope and people of mercy, but not relying on ourselves relying on Jesus, who is gentle and humble in heart and offers us rest for our souls. Lord, may we receive that today. May we respond to Jesus' invitation today. Especially for those of us who are in tough, difficult decisions and places, May we open up our lives to you and to your community that we might proceed in a way that pleases you. We pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen.